Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On today's program, Biden's time. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies. They are Americans. They are Americans. In his first speech after he was declared president-elect of the United States, Joe Biden offers to unify a country riven by divisions and by a sitting president who still refuses to concede the election. Will there be a peaceful transition of power? What will Joe Biden's first priorities be? The former candidate for the Democratic nomination and the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Governor Howard Dean, joins us on that. And then, better relations? Joe is a healer a uniter, a tested and steady hand, a person whose own experience of loss gives him a sense of purpose that will help us as a nation reclaim our own sense of purpose, and a man with a big heart who loves with abandon. How will Joe Biden reshape America's role in the world in the post-Trump era, and what does it all mean for Canada? The Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada, François-Philippe Champagne, joins us with his first comments since Biden's big win. Then, Republican revolt. I think the Democrats are used to this from a Republican party that hasn't had a backbone. You're not going to see that this time around. That party is gone, and anyone that doesn't fight like that should go with it. Donald Trump still claims he won the election, that it was stolen by fraud, but he has no evidence. Will senior Republicans back those allegations? How dangerous a moment is this for the United States? Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, joins us with his view. All that and lots more on Biden's win, on Kamala Harris's historic breakthrough, and what happens next. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. It's over. Well, it's declared over anyway. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. After the excruciatingly long vote count confirmed on Saturday that he'd won the key state of Pennsylvania, that put him over the magic number of 270 electoral college votes, he and his running mate Kamala Harris made history. The most votes ever for a presidential ticket. Kamala Harris becomes the first woman and the first black and South Asian woman to be on the winning ticket. An extraordinary moment. But even as Joe Biden offered to unify the country in his victory speech in Wilmington, Delaware last night, the fireworks could not distract from a troubling reality. Donald Trump has still not conceded defeat. He still claims he's won. So what happens now? Let's get the latest from CTV News. Richard Madden, he is at Biden headquarters in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Rich, I don't know how much sleep you've had, but uh, when the call was made last night, obviously there was was an explosion of reaction there. Tell us about what Joe Biden set out to accomplish in that speech last night and what it says about where he's going. Yeah, so, I mean, it was uh, quite a spectacle here last night. I can tell you that. Uh, Obviously, it was a drive-in rally, people celebrating but remaining socially distant. Uh, And I think Biden hit all the key themes 
uh, that he had to. To he, It was a nod uh, to racial injustice, uh, particularly what uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris in her speech. Uh, Biden also talked about progressive ideals, fighting climate change. Uh, but his overall message was one of unity, saying it's time to heal. Biden has some steep challenges ahead of him, obviously, trying to unite this very divided country, uh, but also trying to set the tone as an incoming president, one of empathy, one of unity, and one of healing. And he hit all those on the marks. What was interesting, though, Evan, uh, Biden did not mention President Trump by name. He didn't mention anything to the president. He didn't mention anything of what he expects uh, to have a relationship with President Trump uh, in those remaining few weeks uh, before Biden officially gets inaugurated. Yeah, it's fascinating. He didn't, he didn't talk about Donald Trump, uh, but Trump, of course, hasn't conceded. That'll, that'll pose challenges. So what do we expect to see then from Joe Biden as he puts together his administration right now? Well, first and foremost, there's tremendous pressure on Donald Trump to concede, although he doesn't have to. Biden will be inaugurated on January 21st, assuming these projections are certified. Uh, and we're learning uh, this morning that Jared Kushner is the one who's tried to pressure Trump to concede and to look ahead in a post presidency world. Uh, as for Joe Biden, well, he's already looking beyond the election. Uh, we've learned he set up uh, as part of his transition, uh, one of his key domestic policies, and that is fighting the coronavirus. He's going to announce names of a coronavirus task force on Monday. That obviously is a nod to just how seriously Joe Biden is taking this pandemic. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, has been accused of really downplaying the severity of this virus. So we know several names uh, that uh, Biden will be announcing on Monday, but it also shows that this is the direction that his uh, presidency will take. Biden made a nod to it last night, talking about we believe in climate change, we believe in science, and that, of course, drew a lot of cheers in this crowd, who many Democrats say this current president really did not mention or take seriously at all. Yeah, and the good news is there was not violence that some predicted last night. Um, it was so far a pretty peaceful moment. Uh, but, Rich, you've done, done extraordinary work. I don't know when you're getting any sleep, but Richard Madden at Biden headquarters, thanks so much. Great to have you. You bet, Ev. Thanks. Now, what does a Joe Biden presidency mean for Canada? Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau acknowledged the result in a statement saying, quote, on behalf of the government of Canada, I congratulate Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on their election as the next president and vice president of the United States of America. Canada and the United States enjoy an extraordinary relationship, one that is unique on the world stage. Is a Biden presidency good for Canada, though? Will Joe Biden's protectionist policies present some of the same challenges as Donald Trump's? Let's find out. Joining me now to discuss the impact here at home is the Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Always good to join, to have you on the program, Minister. Uh, I hope you and your family are doing well. How Thank will you. a Joe Biden presidency be different from a Donald Trump presidency for Canada? Well, first of all, the American people have spoken, and the first word would say to congratulate President-elect Biden, uh, Vice President-elect Harris. I mean, uh, both of them know well Canada. As you know, uh, Madame Harris uh, even studied in Montreal. I think that you're going to see, uh, first of all, we're looking forward to work with the new administration. Uh, I think you'll see new opportunities and possibilities. Uh, those are the words that came up in, in President-elect uh, speech yesterday whether it's about climate change, whether it's about the big challenge we have, like COVID, uh, rebuilding uh, uh, the economy. Uh, I am uh, very hopeful because uh, when you look at the challenges that the world is facing, we're certainly going to be uh, renewing uh, our engagement. This is the uh, most important relationship, I would say, for Canada. 
if you look, we're, we've been blessed by geography, the people-to-people -people time. But for me, it's really, you know, the big prize is, is how can we innovate more together? How can we build more together? And how can we sell more together to the world? Uh, we see supply chains going from, from inter, you know, global to regional, from efficiency to resiliency. So for me, uh, whether it's on the international stage, whether it's on our bad role relationship, I think this is uh, uh, good news and we'll be able to okay. work very well with the new administration. But Joe Biden, one of the key issues is Keystone XL. Joe Biden has promised to kill that pipeline. He can rescind the presidential permit, as you know, and he's promised yeah. to do so. Canada's all in on this pipeline. What will Canada do to fight that? Well, we'll engage. I mean, we'll remind uh, our American partners that Canada is, is the, uh, the best energy supplier, reliable uh, to the United States, a country which produces energy, which is... Uh, I put a price on carbon, uh, which is going to net zero by 2050. Uh, I think we're going to make the case that you have to look at the North American space and see who is the most reliable, uh, a stable, predictable energy supplier and really look at the continent, you know. Start but he thinking knows about that, buying but North America. I, I get and, that. And look but at opportunities to do more together and, and we'll make our case. Definitely. Know, but he knows, hey, look, Joe Biden knows that. He knows the case. There's powerful interests that you, you and I both know want to kill that. He also, Democrats have a long history as well of buy American. So, look, I, I appreciate that, that the relationships, maybe personally with Joe Biden, are good. He may reestablish some kind of norms. Uh, maybe he refunds the WHO. Maybe, uh, it, maybe there are some different norms that Donald Trump did not like in terms of multilateralism that Joe Biden likes. But let's just be specific. If he kills Keystone XL pipeline, what happens? Well, I would say um, I don't think we need to go there, uh, Evan. Uh, we'll make our case. Uh, like I said, I think Joe Biden and, and, and certainly Vice President Harris will be listening to Canada, uh, bring more stability, predictability in our relationship. Uh, we'll make all the arguments that needs to be done in terms of looking at the energy supply in North America. We do that with electricity in the east. We do that in the West with the, the, the pipeline, as you said. And we'll start to look at what we can do. You mentioned buy America. We'll move to buy North America, trying to make the case that if you, you know, millions of jobs in the United States depend on trade with Canada. Uh, they buy more, uh, yeah. uh, they sell more to Canada than they do to China, Japan, and the United Kingdom. To, to make the case that one decision on one side of the right. border will have an impact on both. I think there's a lot uh, that we can do. You said it on the international stage, in our bilateral relationship, and, and really deepen this relationship, which to me is extraordinarily unique. And I think Canadians feel it across the country. For sure. Um, it's a complicated situation. Donald Trump has not conceded this election. So has the prime minister reached out to Joe Biden? How do you guys begin a relationship with a potential Biden administration at a time when the Trump administration, without any uh, evidence, I should say, has suggested there's a fraudulent election, they don't, they're not conceding, they don't accept the result. Um, what does the prime minister do and what do you do in terms of trying to form relationships with a Biden administration? Well, first of all, it's Team Canada. Uh, you've seen us very disciplined, letting the American electoral process go. Um, and we hope for a smooth transition. And, uh, you know, it's clear that uh, President Trump is president until the 22nd, uh, the 20th of January 2021. So therefore, there's one president now. What we'll do is obviously we have been preparing ourselves a lot. Uh, and it's really Team Canada uh, where we're going to go and continue the good work we've been doing. We've seen it in NAFTA. You know, it's, it's us with the White House. It's with Congress. It's with senators. It's with governors. 
uh, premiers across the nation, mayors, uh, we're going to be coordinating, as we have done before, uh, to make sure that we can defend uh, the jobs, the interests that we have in having this most extraordinary relationship. Right. And I'm really hopeful, as I think all Canadians uh, are feeling today, as what we can do. Think about climate change. Think about the COVID response. Think about the economic recovery, the so green just, plan. Just real quick, I, look, I don't know how much he can do on climate change. He'll rejoin Paris, but he's still got a Republican-controlled Senate, so that'll be slow some of his ambitions down. But just, just finally, on COVID, our border with the U.S. has been closed because of it. You said there's an opportunity to change the response. What do you think Biden will do differently than Trump on COVID and the impact on Canada? Well, if I look at his speech yesterday, like uh, most Canadians, he talked about science to be guided by science and saying COVID response is his first priority. I heard that he would put a, a committee in place. Uh, we'll be listening, obviously, because we think that, you know, we've been blessed by geography and having this North American space together. So the more that we can do together in terms of supply chain, coordinating, making sure that we uh, have, have a mutual understanding on the border, I think all these things are positive. When it, well, you can look also at vaccines. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities. Right. I think that's the word that came out yesterday: is possibility, opportunities to do more between Canada and the United States. And obviously, that's very welcome on this side of the border. All right. Well, I got to leave it there this morning, uh, boy. Interesting to see the politics down south and the impact on Canada. Always a big deal. Our foreign affairs minister, Francois Philippe Champagne. Great to have you on the program, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, what's next for the Biden administration, and how does Joe Biden deal with a sitting president who refuses to concede? Former candidate for the Democratic nomination and the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Governor Howard Dean, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Folks, I'm a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. I'll work as hard for those who didn't vote for me as those who did. Let this grim era of demonization in America began to end here and now. So Joe Biden outlined his priorities in his victory speech last night, fighting the pandemic and in the economy back on its feet, but first trying to unify a very fractured nation. What happens if President Donald Trump, though, does not accept the results of the election? He's already challenging it. In a statement yesterday saying, beginning Monday, our campaign will start prosecuting our case in court to ensure the election laws are fully upheld and a rightful winner is seated. How should President-elect Joe Biden handle this and other issues? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former governor of Vermont and the former chair of the Democratic National Committee, Howard Dean. Governor Dean, great to have you back on the program. First of all, your reaction to, after the long count, Joe Biden's victory and, and the importance of Kamala Harris as the first uh, female vice president-elect. Well, like, like your country, our country is getting much, much more diverse. So this is long overdue. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, this is this in this enfranchises uh, tens of millions of people who are of color uh, women. This is the first woman that we have ever had uh, in the vice presidency. Um, so this is a big step forward just for that reason. Uh, Biden is a pretty conventional politician, but he is a healer and he's been through an enormous amount of personal grief in his life. So I think he's ideally suited. Uh, for the role. But this is not going to be easy. There's a tremendous amount of anger, mostly anger at change, uh, anger at, at diversity as scapegoats for change. 
uh, and people are getting left aside, especially in the rural areas. And we're going to have to figure out a way to, to connect with those folks. Yeah, let's get let's get practical on that. Um, first of all, Donald Trump has not accepted as as you and I are speaking. He still claims it was a fraud. No evidence of that. He still has not. He still claims he's won the vic, uh, the, the election. Obviously, that's not true either. Um, but he has every right to 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 go to the courts. Um, he just you know doesn't have the evidence. What does Joe Biden do right now if Donald Trump just never concedes this, never admits he lost? Well, there's no need to, for him to concede legally. Uh, the Constitution says that power changes hands on January 20th at noon. At that time, Joe Biden uh, becomes president of the United States, uh, whether he, he whether he takes the oath or whether whatever. Uh, and that's that. So I think Biden will set up a transition. He will make his appointments. Um, and I don't expect the Senate to obstruct that. I do expect the Senate to be obstructionist because McConnell has been a obstructionist for most of his career. Uh, and, but Biden actually has a decent relationship with McConnell. So I'm reasonably optimistic. We, we, but we haven't come through the end of this. You're quite right uh, about that. Yeah. So, you know, look, it's a big victory for Joe Biden. We saw the speech last night. And Democrats still don't have the Senate, as you point out. But do Democrats have to look into a kind of a cracked mirror? They thought they were going to take the Senate. They thought that there would be this kind of repudiation of Donald Trump. Donald Trump gained votes. He didn't lose votes. Uh, he kept the Senate. He gained votes in the House. Do Democrats have to figure out why what they're putting on the menu is not attracting uh, as many Americans as they thought? What do Democrats have to figure out right now and reflect on? Well, the first thing is the polling industry has to figure out how to poll because, and I don't mean that in any way disrespectfully, uh, because most of the pollsters out there are very, very good. The problem is ever since social media, uh, it's been almost impossible to poll and the polls haven't been really good for quite a long time. And again, it's not the polling industry's fault. They just have, I, I have no idea how to do this. We have to figure out how we're going to get people's opinions. And Trump has made it worse. Trump has made people so angry at the media by using them as a scapegoat that they won't talk to them. So you can stand outside a poll and do exit polling and half the people won't talk to you and then you don't know which half that is, it's self-selected. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is we have to stop fighting on our side between the left and the middle. There was some of that yesterday and it's, it's fool, it's a waste of everybody's time. We have to be in this together, not for some ideological reason, but we can't get anything done if we, if we don't have a majority. And, and the, all of those are 30, 35 out of the 40 seats we picked up in 2018 were for moderate places like Iowa, uh, Orange County, California, Texas, Oklahoma, and we've lost some of those seats now. So I'm, I, I want universal health care, but we don't have to wrap it up in either you do it my way or you're a bad Democrat. But we that's Democrats. Work but I get it. You know, there's a fight between the, the, you know, the farther left side, the Bernie Sanders side of the party and the hard progressives and the, and the, the kind of the Joe Biden centrist. I get it. But outside of your own party, you got to, you know, Biden says he wants to heal. A lot of people who voted for Donald Trump more than ever despise that view. How do you bridge that divide? How does They'll Biden bridge it, do it themselves. Part of it, that part of it, Biden is a hard guy to dislike. Uh, part of it, they'll bridge themselves. There's no great joy in being in opposition to a decent guy. And so a lot of them are going to do what we call in psychology a reduction of cognitive dissonance and, and say, okay. And some of them won't. I mean, there are lunatics who, you know, the kind of people who are trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan. 
you know, you don't convert those people. Those people have to be prosecuted. But most of these people are decent people. Look, somebody once asked me about three, two, three years ago, do I like Trump voters? And I had to think about it for a minute. And I said, yeah, I like them because they most of them used to vote for me when I was running for governor. These are not evil people. These are people who work hard. Uh, they may not be well educated and they've been left behind because of that. Right. Well, how does uh, let's talk about the Biden administration on the world. How does he change? you know, from an international point of view, and you know Canada very well, obviously. Uh, what should people outside of America, like Canadians, expect from a Biden administration in terms of, I don't know, will he refund the World Health Organization that Donald Trump pulled out of? How will... Oh, sure. Yeah, what will happen now? That'll be done on, as, as soon as possible. We'll be back in the in the Paris Agreement. We, we'll be back in the WHO. I mean, all those... Uh, we'll have a, a, a serious ambassador to the United Nations, um, you know, these these are things that are just and, and these people all know Joe Biden. I mean, Barack Obama used Joe Biden as a foreign emissary a lot of times. And everybody who was in power then knows him now. And and those are, of course, going to include a lot of people who are not in power, but they're still important players in their own countries. So you'll see a continuation. Uh, the one thing that will be different is the United States will be more of an equal partner, not the senior partner in a lot of these relationships, because places like Canada and, and Europe, our core allies, have had to fend for themselves for four years. Right. That's a good thing in the long run, because it's going to be a more equal relationship. Uh, just last question before we go. Two big issues for Canadians, as you know. One, uh, Biden wants to kill Keystone XL. Big issue in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan and across the country. And there's a real concern about a Buy American uh, policy isolate, uh, in the United States for economic reasons. What should Canadians expect on those two fronts? Uh, can, can the Keystone XL is going to be a problem because it does... Uh, I mean, fossil fuels is obviously a long-term problem. Um, but uh, in terms of the Buy America stuff, uh, you know, look, Canada is essentially Canada and the United States are essentially a single market. And they have been until Trump got in office. There are a lot of Canadian jobs that are dependent on the American market. And there are American jobs that are depending on exports to Canada. So one hand washes the other. I have no doubt that we can come to a very reasonable trade agreement with Canada. I do think the XL pipeline could be a problem. But I also think that all the other things are going to go away because there's good intentions on both sides of the border. Governor Dean, it's always good to have you on the program. Uh, I'm amazed you got so much sleep. Uh, great to have you here and uh, lots of days to come. I appreciate it always, sir. Thanks. Thanks very much. All right. Coming up on our program, will Republicans stand by Donald Trump and his unproven allegations of electoral fraud? Is the U.S. headed for a short and dark period of instability? We're joined next by Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. Stay right here with question period. I've been talking about mail-in voting for a long time. It's, uh, it's really destroyed our system. It's a corrupt system. And it makes people corrupt, even if they aren't by nature. But they become corrupt. It's too easy. So he will not go gently into that good political night. It is a Trumpian rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Look, the United States is facing an historic challenge. Will a sitting president accept the results of an election and concede power or not? What if Donald Trump does not? Has his allegations of electoral fraud, without evidence, we should say, damaged the U.S. system? 
Let's find out and get some perspective from John Bolton. John Bolton, of course, was Donald Trump's former national security advisor. He's also the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush. And he, of course, is the author of the best-selling book, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, welcome back, Ambassador Bolton, to this program. Good to see you, sir. Let's start with your reaction when you watched Donald Trump's speech in the White House where he alleged the election was being stolen, that there was mass electoral fraud. He did not provide any evidence of that. Um, and he is going to fight this. What was your reaction? Well, the comments are disgraceful. Uh, look, any candidate has the right to take available of whatever legal remedies they may have if they think the election is being corrupted in, in any regard. And, uh, and Trump's, just like any candidate, has a right to do that. So far, however, all we've heard from him and his surrogates uh, is a lot of heated political rhetoric. There's no real evidence that's been presented. Uh, two cases have already been thrown out, one in Michigan, one in Georgia. Uh, others that are threatened to be brought uh, don't have much substance to them. We'll see what the recounts or contests in the different states uh, provide. But the fact is, it's just uh, contrary to uh, basic constitutional values to have the President of the United States uh, attack the fundamental integrity of the country's election system. Uh, and that's basically what Trump is doing. It's another case of Trump not being able to distinguish his personal interest from the national interest. Ambassador Bolton, what would happen, and I don't know if this has ever happened, what would happen if he just does not concede? He does not accept the result. And he just says, no, this is a fraud. What does Joe Biden do? Well, Trump's personal reaction uh, really doesn't make any difference. There's no obligation for him to say anything. There's no obligation to concede. It's a matter of personal and professional courtesy. I'm not waiting around for Trump to display that. Uh, but he, he can deny the reality as long as he wants. The, the only real question, he could, for example, decide not to accompany Joe Biden to the inauguration on January the 20th. It's been a long time since that happened. It's an act of remarkable discourtesy, but that's in line with Trump as well. The, the only issue is whether uh, he resists leaving or something like that. I don't see that, uh, although I think the speech from Thursday night demonstrates there's nobody at the White House now telling him what the truth is. And uh, somebody from the outside is going to have to come in to tell him at some point here. His son, Don Jr., has talked, has used words like war. Uh, you've seen, there's a pretty frightening moment here. There's a big movement uh, that this is all a conspiracy against him and against the Republicans. Um, but you've spoken out that it's time for Republicans to speak out. But very senior Republicans, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, have gone on TV and are supporting the president's view of all this. What does that tell you about what needs to happen in the Republican Party or what is happening in that party? Well, look, I, I've said how we deal with this uh, is a character test for the Republican Party, and I, and I mean that uh, in a very deep sense. I think uh, after the election really is finally resolved, the party needs to have an intense conversation with itself about the direction to follow. And uh, I don't think following it down the Trump line uh, is the way to go. I know the president has a lot of supporters who are very loyal to them. Uh, honestly, I hope in the future we can keep them voting Republican. Uh, 
because uh, he has brought new people into the party. The, the rate of, uh, unbelievably to some, the rate of Hispanic American support for the party uh, is up at very high levels. Uh, but his approach to politics, his anything goes, no rules apply, uh, I can do whatever I want to do uh, approach is wrong. His, his approach that everything is personal, you're either with Trump or against Trump. Right. He tolerates no uh, dissent and he tweets when he doesn't like it. That's unacceptable. Let me ask you, you're a national security advisor. Your job is to look at instability and be concerned to see things through the lens of security. How dangerous a period of time is this in the United States uh, in terms of its own system? When you see a president who you work with for so long attack the system like this, what's the national security implications? Well, I'm worried about two things. I'm worried that uh, once he internalizes the reality that he's lost, he could do a lot of damage inside the government. You know, people were speculating if he wins re-election, he'll fire this cabinet secretary or that senior official uh, in the Justice Department and so on, uh, which, you know, if he were reelected, he can change his government. That's within his uh, constitutional right. I'm worried now that he's lost. He's going to start firing people to show his dissatisfaction. Uh, and I think that people will, the, 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 the longer term risk is that people around the world will misinterpret Trump's actions for actions that really represent the United States. Uh, I believe very strongly Trump is an anomaly. He's an aberration. Our friends around the world, and maybe even more important, our adversaries around the world, should not take Donald Trump to be a predictor for how the United States will behave in the future. We see so much distrust. I mean, Donald Trump has hot-wired distrust. There's conspiracy theories, uh, no trust of anything, the electoral system, Dr. Fauci, you name it. What long-term impact could that have on the U.S. system? This kind of, there are tens of millions of people out there that are so angry and they don't trust anybody. Look, it's a, it's a serious problem and, and Trump has caused a lot of it. Unfortunately, he's not the only cause of the problem. And I think the solution, I hate to sound like Miss Goody Two-Shoes here, but the solution is to move away from Trump's approach and the approach of many others that when they disagree with somebody, they attack the person. They don't discuss the policy differences, yeah. they attack the person. They demean them, they belittle them, they call into question their integrity. We've got to stop that. It's okay to disagree with somebody. I disagree with Joe Biden. I think he's wrong a lot, but I don't doubt his integrity or his patriotism. You and I have been good enough to have these conversations over the last couple months, Ambassador, uh, and I've asked you a lot about working with Trump, and a lot of people have asked me, does Ambassador Bolton regret now, in retrospect, working for Donald Trump, working with him, given what's happened now? Do you ever just think, man, I, I missed the boat on that one? No, quite, quite the contrary. These displays that we've seen from Trump in the, in the hours and, and days after the election were what I saw almost every day I was in the White House. And what that says to me is that, uh, that Americans of good conscience to try and help keep the country on the right track, to try to persuade the president to do the right thing, uh, were correct as I was, and as many others were too, to, to work in his administration and try and keep things on an even keel. So I don't regret it. The only thing I regret is that I wasn't more successful. Well, we appreciate you joining us as always, Ambassador Bolton. Uh, what a fraught time in U.S. history. We'll see where this train is headed. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.
All right, coming up on our program, what does the contested U.S. election mean for Canada? Is Joe Biden good or bad for Canada? What happens to Trumpism right now? The Scrum joins us next to break it all down. Former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore will weigh in as well. Stay right here with Question Period. So after four years of mercurial relations with the United States under Donald Trump, what challenges, what opportunities does a Biden administration pose for Canada? And while Donald Trump may have lost, his movement did gain a lot of support. It's not going anywhere. Will it have any influence on conservatives here in Canada? Let's talk about that and lots more of the scrum is here. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter with the Canadian Press. And our special guest is the former Conservative Industry and Heritage Minister, James Moore. Good morning to all of you. James Moore, well, i got to start with you. Um, I mean, you're the guy that's been in politics for a long time. You, you uh, obviously know a lot of politicians in the United States. Just your reaction, I'm intrigued, with Donald Trump's allegations of fraud and the stolen election and the, and the impact that will have long term. Uh, baseless, embarrassing, sad, unfortunate. Um, but look, the votes will be counted. The the winner will, is known, and, and Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. And I, I just think it's so enormously toxic to any democratic system when the person who is unsuccessful in a campaign doesn't take a moment and to do the scene setter and to set the stage for the person who won the campaign to move forward. You will remember back in 2015 when Stephen Harper lost to Justin Trudeau. It was in October. It was a couple of weeks later that Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau stood together in front of the cenotaph in Ottawa as a physical display of a transition of power and a, and a moment of remembrance in Canada. These are important, subtle things that are critical. And when the president of the United States loses not only the popular vote, but the electoral college and doesn't um, doesn't have that kind of graceful transition of power. It's enormously damaging to the mandate of Joe Biden coming in, and it's enormously toxic to the system going forward. Steph, let me go to you. The pri prime minister's office is quiet, but they got to prepare for any scenario. They've clearly prepared for a Biden presidency. What are the challenges that a Biden presidency may offer Canada? There's a couple of them right off the top. I mean, one, I think anyone who believes that the Buy American rhetoric that was popularized by Donald Trump is going away would be a bit mistaken. Joe Biden really still has a lot of folks within his own caucus that are still advocating very protectionist trade policy, and how Biden navigates that is one. The second one is, um, again, if we can go back a little bit in history, is right after, I believe it was, uh, Trump won the election. Biden was in Ottawa, and he was, you know, on a bit of a farewell tour. He basically effectively handed Justin Trudeau the, the, you know, the torch and said, hey, you know, the world needs more Canada, the world needs more progressive politics. So the question becomes, does Biden take it back? Does Biden now become that standard bearer again for the world, right international relations? And how does Canada reassert or refine a place in that dynamic? Because Trudeau used to really serve as this foil to Trump on the international stage. Now that's gone. So what does Trudeau do for Canada's reputation globally? Joyce, a pipeline runs through this potential Biden relationship. Biden wants to kill Keystone XL. Trudeau has been behind it. He's actually on the, one of these few issues he's working very closely with Jason Kenney on. What do you make of that? What happens to Keystone is an important point. You know, and, and a Biden presidency is liked depending on where you sit geographically in this country. If you're out west and, you know, Canada's natural resources are uh, a richness out there, 
um, then, you know, Biden, you look at Biden in a different way. So, yes, uh, you know, he won't pick on Canada. They won't be those nasty tweets and those insults um, and the tariffs and the threats and, and all that nasty stuff that Canada had to put up with in the last four years. Yes, he will become, you know, a more reasonable ally, perhaps even an ally against China. We may get more help from, mm. from Joe Biden than we did from Donald Trump, for sure. Let me just go back to you, James Moore. Look, whatever people think of Donald Trump, uh, whether he exits the stage or not, and it's a big question right now, uh, Trumpism is here. Uh, he got more votes than in 2016. Uh, a lot of tens of millions of Americans like him, and he was effective. Uh, does Trumpism have an echo effect on conservatives in Canada? Does it have an influence here, James Moore? Not really as presented by Donald Trump. You're right. In 2016, he received 62 million votes. In this election, after four years of Donald Trump and all the circus that came along with it, he received 70 million votes. And I actually think part of the story of the Donald Trump defeat is actually going to be a wasted opportunity. That Donald Trump uh, received a lot of votes from people, particularly in the Midwest states, who had not for very long ever thought of voting for the Republican Party because they were too corporatist, too Washington, too elitist, too, um, you know, captured by certain fragments of the center-right coalition in the United States. And he opened the door to them. And I think in the end, he kind of squandered that opportunity to cement them as a permanent part of the party. Now, his vote total went up, but he lost the campaign because he was unable to broaden the tent more, more effectively. And I think that's the lesson for Canadian conservatives. You'll, of course, remember that from when Donald Trump came into the public spotlight in 2016 through until today, there have been not one but two federal conservative leadership races. And combined in those two races, there have been between you know those who started the campaign and those who finished, uh, upward of 18 or 19 people who ran for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership. Not one, not one of any of those men or women who ran for the leadership said, I want to be the Trump in Canada. Some people, Maxime Bernier, played footsies with some of the issues, Kelly Leach maybe a little bit, but it was nothing like what was seen in the United States with the dog whistle politics, the divisiveness and the ugliness. And I'm, as a conservative, I'm very proud that the party has said no to that kind of politics and has rallied around now Aaron O'Toole to move forward and to reject that kind of politics. Uh, Steph, one other fascinating element here. Donald Trump ran for four years against the media. Uh, he now says big media, big tech is a conspiracy to, to steal the election away. When he said that on that famous now or infamous Thursday night speech, a lot of the big American networks cut away from him. We're not going to do it. Then Twitter has actually now started to essentially stop letting him tweet about things that are just not true because he has provided absolutely no proof for the voter fraud. Do you think the media is doing the right thing to stop showing a president at a crucial moment when the president is speaking. Uh, is that the right choice with the justification that if he's not telling the truth, we're not going to cover it? Is that a bar that is now set? It's, it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, the media in the United States and up here in Canada to a certain extent has watched President Donald Trump for four years throw what, you know, some people call Trumper tantrums. He goes on a rage, he goes on a tear, he's spewing off stuff that is, you know, and in some of these cases borderline untrue, and the media rolls with it. And the argument has always been for four years, he is the president, he does deserve or, or is owed, I suppose, full transparency of his remarks, and it's up to the media and it's up to the public to make the decision in the end right. whether or not they believe him. So the question becomes, what's the media supposed to do? Are they supposed to not air it, or do they air it and then rush as fast as they can to fact check it, to provide that counterpoint, to challenge him? 
And, you know, perhaps that's the better on the side of caution is, for lack of a better word, to present both sides of the story. The president just said this. There is absolutely no evidence, and he needs to present the evidence full stop. To cut him off uh, just fuels that conspiracy theory, potentially, and it makes people believe that, once again, somebody is hiding something. There is some big conspiracy out against him. And this is part of the reason that the Democratic argument, the debate in the United States has become so toxic and so polarized, as everyone accuses everyone of lying and covering up all the time. All right, guys, you got to leave it there. Thanks so much to Steph Levitz, Joyce Napier, and James Moore. Great to have you here. Coming up next, where does America go from here? And what happens next? Senior editor at The Atlantic, David Frum, and Ovik Roy, policy editor at Forbes and former advisor to Mitt Romney, joins us on the Biden administration plan. Stay right here with Question Period. The networks thought Biden was going to win by 10 percent. Gee, what happened? Come on, don't be don't be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections. Courts do. So as of right now, Donald Trump still refuses to accept that Joe Biden has won the election. And while Trump has every right to engage in legal challenges, he so far has not brought any evidence forward of this mass electoral fraud he's talking about. How does Joe Biden handle this moment? And what should Republicans do? What happens now to that movement? Joining us now to talk about it is the senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine, David Frum, and Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity. Great to have both of you on. Uh, David Frum, first of all, uh, let's just focus in on this. What do you make of Donald Trump's continual refusal to concede and how senior Republicans are handling this moment? Right. Well, D Donald Trump's refusal comes out of his own psychology and his own psychological needs. But what he is doing is is feeding a mood of um, myth and paranoia among Republicans. Um, you, you see there already are some QAnon people elected to Congress. Um, and that movement, a paranoid movement um, of wild allegations, that movement gets strength from this. And what he also does is he um, deters and discourages the necessary work of thinking um, where do Republicans go? I mean, Trump found some true things about American politics. He did get um, the largest turnout of any, as he says, he's not wrong. He did get this enormous turnout, mobilize a lot of Americans. There's some power there. And the challenge for Republicans is going to be, how do you um, use what Donald Trump discovered and save it from the horrible things that Donald Trump did and said and the destructive nature of the Trump personality. Yeah, Ovik, I pick up on that because there are going to be yeah. senior Republicans and, you know, Ted Cruz that are kind of joining Donald Trump right now in his refusal to concede. I guess he's protecting political viability in four years if he wants to run, trying to inherit that Trump movement. But how do they walk that line between trying to inherit that movement and supporting a president who right now has provided no evidence for these wild allegations? This is the most important uh, thing that's going on in American politics right now, actually, is that intra-Republican or intra-conservative debate about the direction of the movement in the party. Uh, to put it in roughly Canadian terms, is it more like a Jason Kenney-type movement, where you really try to be inclusive and reach out to minorities but have a more traditional free market approach to policy? Or is it more, say, a Doug Ford-type populist approach where you kind of throw the free market stuff, free trade, et cetera, out the window, and it's more about a, a kind of a nationalist economic agenda? That's the debate, and we're going to see that because right away, all these uh, Republicans who want to run in 2024 are going to start staking their uh, flag in the turf, and they're going to be debating that. 
Yeah, interesting, David. You can pick up on that. Even Doug Ford seems to have changed from when he was first uh, elected. David, David, how does what happens to the Republican Party, a party that that you know for you has you know you've had to do your own soul searching as you left the Trump part of the Republican Party. What happens to the party now? Well, I think they have, they have to make a, at the beginning a threshold, as we said, a threshold decision, um, and this is really the very first thing, and everything else follows from this. Do you see the glass half empty, or do you see the glass half full? Do you, here's the glass half full, um, an astonishing number of votes, not only 2020, but in 2018. Um, and it really is true that Donald Trump made inroads. If the exit polls are not to be trusted, but there's a lot of other evidence, he made in, inroads into men in the Latino world, not Latinos generally, but male Latinos. Um, he did well with um, certain kinds of groups that Republicans have struggled with before, glass half full glass half empty. The Republican Party has ceased to exist in the state of California, the most important state of the union. Gender gap of at least 20 points, maybe 30. Um, and alienation of the Republican heartlands of the, um, the, the suburbs where people have mortgages and professions. And those people, that, that is the single biggest group that swung to Biden. They delivered the election to the Democrats, and they are the historic heartland of the Republican Party. Ovik Roy, okay, just real quick, what about Joe Biden now? He says he's going to promise to heal this. There's going to be a Republican-controlled Senate. What does he need to do right now? Well, I think that's a key, is if uh, Republicans win one or both of these Georgia Senate runoffs, which we will find out in Jan early January of 2021, then um, that this is going to be, as we've talked about before, Evan, the first time in 136 years that a newly elected Democratic president did not have majorities in both the House and Senate to go along with it. So he's not going to be able to do a lot legislatively. He's going to be able to do some things maybe through executive orders, but he's going to have no choice but to work with Senate Majority Leader, in that case, Mitch McConnell, the Republicans, uh, to work out some bipartisan legislation. I think Biden has that bipartisan temperament to him, and McConnell has worked with Biden for many years. So there's, it's possible that on certain issues they can work together. We just don't know. But that is going to lower the temperature, I think, the fact that government will be somewhat divided and, and the Democrats won't be able to do the more aggressive left-wing things that some people on the progressive side really want to do. David, just quickly from a Canadian point of view, from outside the United States, what should the world expect now from a Biden presidency? How might it differ from a Trump presidency in terms of consequential decisions. Well, one of the things from a Canadian point of view that's really on the table is, um, look, NAFTA does need to be updated for the 21st century. It was written before there was an internet or before there was a web anyway. Um, the Trump, Trump people did a really unserious job of, of they just put in extra protectionism. But a new trade framework for the digital age, um, that's not something that's going to happen fast. But what that there are, there are just billions of dollars in gains to both countries that are available if you can bring NAFTA into the 21st century. And that's probably a big project the Canadian governments will have with the Biden administration. All right. Well, it's going to be fascinating in the days to come, the months to come. David Framovic, Roy, uh, guys, really appreciate you joining us on an incredibly busy week. Uh, and thank all of you for watching and joining us as we cover these momentous events. That's question period for this week. It was an extraordinary week in politics. So if it's safe to hug your loved ones, do it. You might as well. And remember, take time this November 11th to think about those who have given so much to keeping our country safe and to stand for our great democracy and democracies all over this world. We'll be back here in seven short days, and I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on PowerPoint.